Stephen Woolley is something of a cinematic magician, or if not a magician himself, then at the very least a master designer of tricks. For Stephen is one of Britain's most successful producers, working wonders behind the scenes in order to bring over 60 movies to our screens. He's perhaps best known for his work with Neil Jordan on films such as Interview with the Vampire, Company of Wolves, Michael Collins and the Oscar-winning Crying Game. He also directed the Brian Jones biopic Stoned and executive produced Backbeat. If you're wondering any further about his credentials for soundtracking, Stephen has variously secured the services of David Bowie, Jerry Dammers, Dusty Springfield, Boy George and the Pet Shop Boys for movies he's produced. You'll hear songs from all of these artists woven into our conversation, as well as extracts from Carl Davis' theme from Scandal and Dudley's work on The Crying Game and Rachel Portman's score for Stephen's latest film, Their Finest. But we begin in punk London, the place where Stephen's love of music and film germinated. The accompaniment is provided by Carter Burwell's opening to Caro, another of the projects that he's produced, and a score that I absolutely love. Stephen Willie, it's a pleasure because we've seen each other in various environments over the years <laughs> in the film world, yeah. but I'm thrilled that you are our first producer on the show and you've also directed, but I'm really intrigued to get the role of a producer when it comes to music and how involved you can be, but also personally music and film and, and what it's meant to you. What I was doing before we chatted was reminding myself of some of the wonderful soundtracks that have accompanied the films that you've worked on. Mm -hmm. And probably most recently for me, the one that's just under my skin is the Carol soundtrack, which was just mind-blowing and beautiful and stands alone as a beautiful piece of music that Carter Burwell did. For you, what's the role of music in film? What do you think the role music has? Well, it's really crucial, and thank you for inviting me on because I feel very privileged as the, as the only producer. Growing up in the 60s and 70s, music was a crucial part of my life, much more, I think, than it is probably now for younger people. I mean, you used to literally walk around with your records under your arm, and I, I remember, I, I was very lucky, you know, my, my first proper job was at the screen on the Green Islington where the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Buzzcocks played there. So punk was a big thing for me in that summer of 76, a very, very hot, long summer where every single night seemed to be The Damned or X-Ray Specs, and of course Paddy Smith and all the guys came over, talking heads and television. You're so spoiled. It was so lucky. <laughs> I was so lucky. During that time, I think music became a very important thing for me politically because I was a kid who just loved movies and I had no ambition to be a producer. I just loved film. Yeah. So I ended up with my own cinema, The Scala, and we did lots of musical events and we had a really great buzzy cinema. I showed 18 movies a month and all-nighters and it was very, very hip and, you know, the slits play there quite a lot. I bet.
I started a distribution company in the very early 80s. And two people, John Borman, a famous film director, and Jeremy Thomas, a film producer in Tokyo, both said to me, out of the blue, you should be a film producer. And I didn't quite know what that was. And I <laughs> hooked in with Neil Jordan, whose film Angel I loved, and said, look, you want to come and make a film in London? Because we got to know each other really, really well. And I apparently should be a film producer. So what do you want to do next? And we ended up making Company of Wolves, which was my first film. Little girls, this seems to say, never stop upon your way. Never trust a stranger friend. No one knows how it will end. As you're pretty, so be wise. Wolves may lurk in every guise. Now, as then, is simple truth sweetest tongue has sharpest tooth but to be honest through 60 odd movies apparently on IMBD that I've now produced or executive produced over the last 30 odd years I've never felt really comfortable with the title film producer really well because I think you do more and less on every film yeah and your influence or your passion or your I suppose a simple term your sort of contribution does vary from movie to movie People are obviously very confused when they see the title producer because you look at a movie and sometimes there's like 20 of them. Yeah. I mean, who knows what an executive producer or a co-producer or associate producer yeah. is. You know, it's, it's confusing. <laughs> so sometimes I've, I might have sat with a project for The Limehouse Gollum. It's another film I made last year with Jane Goldman. And Jane and I worked on that for six years together. Previously, I worked on it with Terry Gilliam for three or four years. Previously, <laughs> I had worked on it for a little bit with um, two other directors. So I, that was a 13-year film in gestation. So I feel the film now, with Bill Nye, actually, who's star of the other film that we made, The Finest, um, that's, that's took a long time, and I feel very close to that, yeah. that material. But sometimes somebody will call you up and say, look, I've got this project, I don't know what to do, what can I do about it? I'd love to get it made this year, I don't have, you know... When I did Youth last year with Loved Michael Caine... that film. ...and Hyper Keitel, that was literally a call from Rome saying, we desperately need a UK co-producer, we really love your films. The producer, the Italian producer, loved Mona Lisa, strangely. Yeah. And said, we're trying to cast Michael Caine, you know you've worked with him, because <laughs> I did Little Voice as well with Michael Caine. Could you and Elizabeth, my producing partner, would you be interested in coming on board? And we flew to Rome, had lunch with Paolo Sorrentino, and next thing you know we're we're making the film with them yeah that was a totally different experience from nurturing and massaging and taking a project and getting all the highs and lows but i think that coming back to the music question about how important music is for me for films going back to the mid-70s when i first started I, you know running cinemas really music was a was a was a, a crucial part of my life you know it was film and music always came together yeah and I think for most of us that see films, whether it's Bernard Herrmann's incredible score for Psycho or whether it's Michael Kamen's incredible use of Brazil in Brazil, you know, we all have very fond memories of our experience with music in cinema as much as the movie itself. The movie is obviously the thing. Yeah. 
but the score can take you one way or another. You know, you play a bit of sad music over a, a, an action scene, and it does different things. And, and that's that's the thing with music. It's it's the final layer on a movie, but often it can be the most crucial. good example of that when we, we made a film called <laughs> Interview with the Vampire in the 90s after the, the success of The Crying Game we were asked to make interview with David Geffen and there's this thing I'm sure you've discussed this a thousand times on your shows called test previewing do you hate that? no I like test previewing what's well, like life yeah. if you go in to something and you want to change it or you want to to make a difference mm. if someone says oh I hate that scene you can easily say well we should take it out but if the purpose of the scene is for them to hate it then it's, it's difficult because yeah, you interpret people's different responses mm. and I like test previewing because I think until an audience has seen a film it doesn't have anything in it I mean you know we as filmmakers spend so long as I said sometimes 13 or 14 years yeah. with something and we're shooting it and we're with the script has gone through a thousand different changes and the edit has gone through so many changes until you see a film with an audience there's no life in it there's no blood mm. it, it, all it is is just your desires and when you see it with an audience they laugh at stuff you didn't even think was very funny they jump at things you didn't think were very scary they cry moments when you thought that's supposed to be a comedic moment. <laughs> yeah. Why are you all crying? And an audience brings their own innocence to mm. it. And without that innocence, uh, you don't really have a film. You, you have a, a fantasy, really, of what you think the film should be. So I like test, test uh, previews, but only under circum certain circumstances. Because <laughs> yeah. they, they can be easily manipulated by a studio. But in Interview the Vampire, it was a simple process because we had a best-selling novel by Anne Rice and we knew that, that if everybody that read the book came to the movie, we would have a hit. So we showed our first preview in San Francisco and the audience seemed to like the film, but they didn't like the music. Oh, wow. It was scored really low, like incredibly low. Mm -hmm. They have averages and percentages for these things. Yeah. And we kind of were a little bit worried about the music ourselves. So we brought another composer in. Elliot Goldenthal. Who you'd worked with previously? No, it's our first you know, film was with him. It? Yeah, Warners had suggested Elliot. Um, oh, then you went on to work with him, Michael Collins. Elliot then worked with us and mm -hmm. Neil in particular. Yeah. And they formed a really great relationship. And we made a couple of films with Elliot after that. And uh, he's a terrific composer. 
But the score just zoom, just went somewhere else. It just brought in attention and a, and a sense of, of foreboding uh, that was so crucial to the movie. But scores can just simply transform or heighten or underpin mm -hmm. the action in a way that really does give your film an opportunity to get home. And as I said, it is something which is often, because it's the last thing in the movie, can be almost forgotten in the, in the mix. Yeah. <laughs> When you brought in Elliot, did you watch the film with the old score on and did you then, was it a conversation that you had about what you thought it needed or did you just leave it up to him to interpret? One has to say on, in that, on that case, it was really a case of Elliot and Neil, Jordan. Mm, yeah. He watched the film without the score, is my, is my memory. And it was difficult because the score wasn't bad that we had, just didn't seem to work. Yeah. So the score that Elliot did, which was a slightly better take, was, I think achieved because of what we previously had in a way even though Elliot didn't hear yeah. what we'd had it was because we knew there were some things that didn't work yeah so he just took another stance it's the only time that's ever happened in my producing life where we've had a, a replacement you know on other films we replace cameramen or you replace it isn't because they're necessarily doing bad work it just doesn't work for this project somehow it doesn't fit that's one of the problems of being a producer you get the bad stuff <laughs> you're the problem solver aren't you well, when you make a movie, composers in particular, they have big egos, they're artists. Yeah. And directors have big egos, they're artists. Yeah. And writers have big egos, they're artists. And actors have big egos, they're artists. So the producer has to jump around with all these characters, mm -hmm. but you really have to kind of be the mediator between all of them. <sighs> That film was a different kind of movie because because it was it was such an important film for Warner Brothers. It was such an important film for everyone involved because it was a high budget. My first studio picture. I'd yeah. never worked with a studio before. Yeah. And there was so much sort of resting on the picture. And we had made a controversial decision by casting Tom Cruise as the vampire of the stat. It's hard now looking back. About yeah. The vampire because it, it was so controversial at the time that we had cast Tom Cruise in, in this part, and no. now it just seems. <laughs> So what? Who yeah. cares? You know. Yeah. But when you're in the heat of all that stuff, it was like, oh my God, Anne Rice doesn't love us, and we had to really batten down the hatches because Tom was brilliant in the mm -hmm. film. But we had to really, really sort of like keep it to ourselves. And then when, of course, uh, the film was released, everybody thought Tom was wonderful in the film, and Anne Rice took a four-page ad in Variety saying, "I was wrong. Tom Cruise <laughs> is the best vampire that you can imagine." The other story in that film, of course, was Guns N' Roses. <laughs> we did Sympathy for the Devil at the end of the movie. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth 
and taste. Up and around for a long, long year. Storm many man's soul and faith. I was around when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. Me, damn sure the pilot washed his hands and sealed his faith. <laughs> Part of my job as a producer is to make sure that we achieve what we set out to do. And if that's a hit, that's great. The thing we mustn't do is try and make something that wasn't there in the first place. As long as we think, well, look, we got it right to the specifications we wanted. Yeah. And this is exactly why I wanted to make that film was, was for these reasons. Mm. And then at the end of it, you can walk away and go, well, that, that's what we did. And people liked it. Yeah. Great. And then that's what we did. But people didn't like it and that's sad. You know, the thing with Stoned is that I never thought, because I was making a film about the Rolling Stones and didn't really have a lot of Rolling Stones music I wanted it. to ask about that, yeah. Yeah. It really was about something else. It was a drama. I was trying to make a drama that had music, a lot of Robert Johnson, which inspired Brian and Keith. Every time I'm walking down the street Some pretty mama's not breaking down with me Stop breaking down a lot of the music that really was the stuff that Stones in the early days ripped off. And the Beatles, of course, ripped off a lot of black R&B and black blues. So I wanted that to be the, the music for the film. Every time I'm walking all down the street
But of course, a lot of people going to see Stone were like, where's the hits? The way that you did that took it away from the fact it's about the Rolling Stones. It's about a person dealing with all that stuff around. So the fact that you didn't do that for me was a positive. But that's sometimes a difficult <coughs> thing to do because the Rolling Stones fans are the Rolling Stones fans. I mean, and I'm one of them and you're one of them and we all are. How mm. could we not be a Rolling Stones fan? I mean, they're terrific. But what I found odd about how music changed by the late 60s and early 70s was this idea of, of it becoming almost like a corporate thing. If you're part of the Rolling Stones world, it's called The Firm. You're either in The Firm or you're out of The Firm. It was when Klein, Alan Klein was around, and I had to go through Alan Klein to get the rights on the music for The Stones, for Stoned. And I, I'd met him when we did Sympathy for the Devil for Interview, Interview the, Vampire. the Vampire. So Alan Klein was still a big presence out there. Was he um, easy to deal with? No. <laughs> No, he wasn't. Um, Notoriously not easy no. interesting just getting a sense of the whole power struggle there and how the a lot of those successful survivors like the Rolling Stones felt it was really necessary because they'd been so badly ripped off in the 60s yeah to have this kind of you know legal and accountancy kind of sort of wall around them and that lasted right through when I was making absolute beginners The interesting thing with Absolute Beginners was that Keith Richards was supposed to be doing some music for the film. Oh, wow. So I came into conflict with the Rolling Stones even then, in, back in the mid-80s. It was because Julian, who directed the movie, yeah. and, and, and if anyone listened to this even has even seen Absolute Beginners... But I think there'll be a few. There might be a couple, my punk connection with um, Rock and Roll Swindle because I used to write as well for Time Out and things about films if I love films but I'd written the cover story for the Rock and Roll Swindle because of my love of punk mm. and everything. So I knew Julian quite well. Also, he used to go to old movies at the Electric Cinema. If I go and see a Sam Fuller film or a Howard Hawks movie, there'd be like me and Julian in the audience. So I sort of knew him. And then when he, date. Yeah, and then when... Well, we'd only go on a date. We didn't even speak to each other. I just knew that other weird-looking bloke was liking films I liked. Then when he made the early shorts that became Rock and Roll Swindle, Sex Pistols 1 and God Save the Queen, I showed them at my old cinema, The Sky. People said we couldn't play, they called us foul-mouthed yachts, but the only notes that really can 
long story short, he, he had this project called Absolute Beginners that he wanted to make, and I was very nervous about taking Colin McInnes' novel and turning it into a musical. It was, seemed like crazy. But there was weird pressure on me to produce it. Finally, I caved in and we jumped into it, and it became a, an adventure. I wrote the cover story for Time Out, which was called Absolute Nightmare, the producer's diary of Absolute Beginners, because <laughs> it was a nightmare. The whole thing? No. There were ups, <laughs> there were, the, the pleasures were well, meeting David Bowie, of course, and working with David Bowie was, was a highlight, utter highlight. But what was interesting with Julian is that Julian would come in, and as a film director, one is used to film directors being fantasists of some sort. That's what makes them great. Mm-hmm. You know, they will imagine that this is going to happen, and sometimes it does. But Julian would come in and say, oh, I met Sade, in a nightclub last night she's going to do a song for the film and I think what time in the morning did you meet Charlie? and that's, that's just not going to happen and then I get a call from Charlie's manager like in the afternoon going she's going to record the song for your film tomorrow she's going to do a demo is that okay we'll get it over to you by and I'll be like oh okay wow. and then I go off to Charlie's management and they're all like yeah yeah Same with Paul Weller, John Weller, his dad, you know, Julian will come in and say, oh, Paul Weller's going to write something for us. And I go, like, really? And then John Weller will call me up and go, um, well, Paul's written this track, but before we send it over, can I have a chat with you about what the deal is? And I'm like, all right, I'm going to see John. Have you ever chased a night that's up in front of It was great because all these people that Julian would be mentioning, they were all doing stuff. I mean, even people that didn't actually make it into the film, like Elvis Costello. and I mean, all these people, Difford and Tilbrook, were all doing stuff for us. And Julian had made a few promos for the Rolling Stones, and Keith Richards was uh, apparently going to do a version of So What, Miles Davis's So What, for the end of the film. And it's just one of the greatest... Greatest songs ever. Well, Charlie Mingus actually wrote it, but Miles Davis made, made it famous, but it's fantastic. going to go a sort of extended riff for the riot scene at the end. In the end, Jerry Dammers did something which was absolutely brilliant for us at the end. 
But I went in to see Prince Rupert of Lausanne, who was the Rolling Stones sort of manager, stroke business manager or whatever, in New Bond Street. And by now, of course, I'd been dealing with Jake Riviera and John Weller and Sade and Ray Davis's management, you know, and all of whom were very happy because David Bowie had already jumped on board as Mm -hmm. well to do the deal that was proposed. Literally blew cigar smoke in my face. He's sitting about no closer than you are here, wow. and smoking a big cigar. And that was the response I thought I was going to get from everyone. And he laughingly said, "If you can imagine how many people come in here saying they just that last night they were with Keith Richards in a club, <laughs> yeah. and he agreed to do a song." And I thought, "Well, yeah, I can imagine. Like every day, you get somebody saying, <laughs> yeah. I was in a I was in a bar last night with Keith, and he said he'd do a song because <laughs> someone like Keith, you you know, must get approached all the time." And I said, but no, that's actually for... And he just sort of spluttered and laughed and coughed and, and laughed me out of the room. I felt so embarrassed when I hit uh, New Bond Street because I thought, that's what I expected it to be like from everyone. You know, that was mm. what I thought it would be like yeah. when you approach the... And then you have to go back and go back. And uh, in the end, Keith didn't do anything for Absolute Beginners. But that's a producer story. Because <laughs> that's a great producer that is story. Not, <laughs> that is not a story that you would get from a director or from a PR person. being mean about it because I realised at that point that when you get to the size the Rolling Stones got to that you're dealing on another level yeah it's not a personal level is it they've kept it there I mean if you look at the work I've done there's kind of a pattern to the 60s throwback thing you know and the 60s was a very big thing for me yeah because that's when I grew up London's a very big thing for me I made a lot of films about London because that's where I also where I grew up and coming from a, a working class stroke criminal class family that I came from. Five of us slept in one room and all those things. We had a tiny kitchen. We all sat on the floor. But it wasn't a sad world. It was a very happy world. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in this environment and I always felt, going back to the idea of telling true stories, I always felt that the real world I lived in wasn't the world I saw in the newspapers or saw on the television. Or And so I think I, I've always had that kind of idea of the 60s being both the most exuberant, most wonderful, most positive time yeah. you could imagine, and the 60s never being quite what you think it is. <laughs> so I think I've always come back to the 60s. And I, one of the things that I think with musicians from that time, um, like the Rolling Stones and like so many people, is that they were badly ripped off. Yeah. They just were. The record yeah. companies took all their money. No matter how many hits they had, they didn't seem to be able to get back and look at the hits the Kinks had or look at the hits that the Rolling Stones had or look at the terrible deals that were done. They were thinking, well, I don't seem to have any money and I've got, just had like five number one hits. Yeah. Or I've just toured Britain again for the 50th time. I mean, how many times did Jimi Hendrix play? Yeah. And he got no money. Nothing. You know? And of course, by the time the 70s and 80s came, when lawyers suddenly were on the right side, not the wrong side, mm. people started to get a little bit of, a little bit of their royalties 
years back. So I do know that story and I do understand exactly where their psyche is coming from, which yeah. is we have to protect ourselves. We have to build a wall because what will happen is we'll get done. I think the highlights for Absolute Beginners for me were obviously when David Bowie agreed, because we were in trouble on that film, because we needed to get an American deal and we needed to get a little bit of a name in the film. And by the nature of the project, we couldn't really cast big stars in the roles because we needed a young kid to play the lead. And it was Eddie O'Connell and Patsy Kenzett in the end. I mean, even now, it would still be very difficult to get a film off the ground with two young British actors, basically. So having an opportunity for David to be in the movie was a big thing. And the director wasn't... Do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? Carla, I want you to use your imagination. You wake up one morning and you ask yourself, Why am I so exciting? What makes me dramatic? You're trying to say something about yourself. This dazzling crime of wisdom. When we talked about doing this, there were certain things that you pulled up. Where, yes, I can. I want to talk about this and this and this. Yeah. And David performing Volari in Absolute Beginners was one of the things that you, you instantly highlighted. Yeah. Because I think what happened with David, what was really, really cool was that when we met him, it was crucial to our film. So I saw David Bowie, you know, when he came on, when Iggy Pop played The Rainbow during that punk time. And it was the most incredible moment. I mean, there's probably like 10 great gigs in my life, but that was one of the great moments when Iggy Pop was playing at The Rainbow and and Bowie came on. I think I probably cried. I'm thinking I'm crying of it now. Everyone was there. Joe Strummer and the whole punk fraternity were there CD pop. Then on <laughs> comes Eddie Bowie and we're like, oh my God. And it was like, great moment. cemented love for me. I think I just fell in love. So to meet David Bowie, who really, really wanted to do the project, you know, he wrote Absolute Beginners. He just wrote it himself. He just came in one day and said, by the way, I've written this song for you. And it was like, uh, oh, okay. we played it. It was like incredible. I remember it was a sunny afternoon in our production office. All the windows were open. There about three of us in a room and we just put the um, cassette on and played it mm. to full volume. And we were all this is astonishing.
Anyway, when we met with David, I was the most nervous person in the world, as you can imagine. Sat opposite him in a restaurant called L'Epicure, which no longer exists on Romilly Street in Soho. And um, everything I said, Tony Visconti, Brian Eno, Iggy Pop, these were the people who made the album, not David Bowie. As far as he's concerned, he just gave so credit to everyone else. It was like, oh no, no, that was Tony Visconti. Oh no, you know, that was that was really Brian Eno. It was just unbelievable. He just wouldn't. He was just the most modest, self-abasing person, and so funny. Um, Brixton boy. We talked about Tony Hancock most of the time because he <laughs> had a lot of the Tony Hancock albums that I had. Because in those days you couldn't get Hancock. It was very difficult. You had to buy, go and buy the records of Hancock. You know, it wasn't being played at all. And I was thinking, I'm having a conversation about Tony Hancock. We should be talking about hanging out in Berlin and Reed. And but <laughs> he probably no, loved he's... you for that. Good morning, Doctor. This won't take long. I think you'll find the cardiac tubes and the blood sedimentation rate normal. The epiglottis seems in order, though there is evidence of a few adhesive cystations on the pleural wall with a site fibrosis of the intravenous duodenum, possibly psychosomatic. Get your clothes off. <laughs> Certainly not. But the thing that was interesting was that Volare which he recorded for the film, which is only in the film very briefly, but there's a full version of it on the album. I think that was one of the high points for him because it was something that he'd remembered listening to. And do you remember, well, you don't, you're too young, but we, when we grew up on Sundays, there were yeah. all these things like Sing Something Simple where they would... My granddad used to, used to kind of, almost kind of recreate that for me as a child growing up. Yeah, well, mm. it would be this terrible backing, you know, with the doo-wops and the bar all sung by these crystal clear sort of white voices. For me, it was like the nightmare of Sundays when there was nothing <laughs> to do, you know, the nightmare of Sunday when the whole of Britain would kind of close down, it would just go to sleep. something like Sing Something Simple where they would take really good American songs and turn them into mush. If you knew Peggy Sue Then you'd know I like you blue About Peggy About my Peggy Sue Oh well I love you girl Yes I love you Peggy Sue Every day It's a get closer Going faster Than a roller coaster But I think David was so keen on recreating that Anthony Newley 60s sound that had gone so out of fashion. It was kind of the thing for him with the 50s. Let's not forget the kind of range of music in the 50s. So I kind of always thought Tony Hancock, Valare, popular music of that time, he had a nostalgia for that. He had a, a feeling about the reality of Britain at that time. Mm. And that's something which I thought was a very crucial part of the film. And that's why I got excited about Valare. reminded me of the kind of music you would listen to, <laughs> the actual kind of music you would listen to. But his version of Valaria is really good. Improvviso venivo del ventura 
rápido This is a great example, I think, as well, of when you think of an artist or a song synonymous with a film, and Dusty Springfield and Scandal for me, and Boy George and the Crying Game, those performances and those songs, if you hear them, it's the first thing you think about is the film. Both of those occurrences, I mean, they really were through the kind of oddest avenues, really, really producer things here. When I made Scandal, it was a first-time filmmaker, Michael Caton Jones. It was his first, it was literally his first feature film. And that was John, the great John Hurt. Incredible and, performance. Uh, and Ian McKellen. We had a really terrific cast. And I'd cast John and Joanne before I'd hired a director because Joanne came in for an audition to meet with the director for Mona Lisa and I knew she wasn't going to get the part for whatever reason. I could see that her and Neil didn't get on but I chased her down Berwick Street Market with a copy of Scandal because when she came into the office, I swear, the entire place went silent. Mm. She just walked through the office and came into the... And I thought, oh my God, it's Christine Keeler. Every single guy in this place is staring at her. I mean, she really had that sort of effect. Yeah. At that time, I was going to do it as a TV show, a TV okay. miniseries with Stephen Frears. So I chased her down Barry Street and said, look, I don't know if this is going to work out on Mel and Lisa, but could you read this? And we became mates after that. So Joe was on board straight away. And then John, I released a film called The Hit. And he's so Stephen Ward. At the night of the premiere of The Hit, I said, you've got to play Stephen Ward. But what happened was we could never get the film made as a TV show because Profumo was still very high up in the Tory party. Yeah. We didn't realise this, but every TV channel we went to, BBC, Houston, Channel for everyone, no one would make it because there was this memo that we never saw that went which right. said you can't do anything about Profumo, blah, 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 blah. So for seven years we were trying to get it made and then we finally got it made as a film. The only way I could do it as a film so I had to take the four and a half hours and turn it into two hour script Oof. and because the writer was like I don't know how you make this as a film it's four and a half hours and I'm like well we have to do it otherwise we'll never make it it was a red rag to the ball for me I was like I'm going to get this bloody made <laughs> so we did it as two hours and Michael was really into it and I did the cut down version with Michael as well Michael Kent Jones he was a great guy I mean he is a great guy and we worked together on doing it as a film We were putting the music together. I was very keen to use as much music as possible from that time. Um, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, uh, the Dakotas, all the music in the film. Foods, and yeah. I discovered it was mainly EMI. So I thought, wow, God, EMI, I have no money. How am I going to get to pay for all this great music? And I looked at the EMI catalogue of their bestsellers and the Pet Shop Boys had just had West End Girls in America, which was the number one. And I thought, well, Pet Shop Boys, they know Ian McCallan. They might 
jump at this and they did a track with Dusty Springfield Dusty's perfect Dusty <laughs> is Dusty's scandal she is like Christine yeah. Taylor she was that character so I rang up Neil and I got a number for Neil and rang him and said look would you take a look at the film and maybe do a track with Dusty and Michael really wanted Frank Sinatra's witchcraft at the beginning which was going to cost them a huge amount of money mm. if I couldn't get EMI to help us out those fingers in my hair that sly come hither stare that strips my conscience bare it's witchcraft and I've got no defense for it the heat is too intense for it what good would common sense for it do cause it's witchcraft wicked witchcraft and although i know it's strictly taboo when you Yes, indeed, in me, proceed with what you're leading me to. So Neil really liked the footage, and Neil and Chris said, we'll see if Dusty's up for it, and they wrote that fantastic song. That, for the end of the film, was just magic for us. But it was really so I could get access to the EMI catalogue. That's how it started, <laughs> and that's the oddest thing is that it wasn't... Well, look what you ended up with. And we ended up with Dusty, and it was our last big hit. Dusty for me was somebody, and we do have a Dusty project, by the way, which we can't talk about now. But um, that's the next part. That's part two. Part two. Yeah. <laughs> but Dusty for me was like Keela was somebody who really did piss a lot of people off in the sixties because she was so absolutely out there and. She tried to control her music. She put a huge amount into every single song she ever sung, ever recorded. But also, you know, she stood out against apartheid. And she was as outwardly gay as she possibly could be for that time. And she became a real heroine for so many people. So she was as about as anti-establishment as you could possibly get in a very discreet and very clever way. So getting her for the film was fantastic. And that album, Dusty in Memphis, has got to be in great albums of all time. I mean, it's amazing. You've been crying, your face is
George on The Crying Game, that was a strange one because Neil had written that song on The Crying Game in the script. And when we shot the film, you know, we had Jay Davidson perform that. And Dudley did an amazing score for the film. It was a fantastic mm. score. It was partly inspired by Ivo Part, and we had originally had Ivo Part's um, Requiem on the film, and then obviously we could never clear, and Ivo Part wasn't into doing a zero-budget movie in London, so we went and asked Anne if she would do the music for the movie. Anne is a terrific composer. What happened with that film, it was called The Soldier's Wife. That was what it was entitled. And we made it as The Soldier's Wife. And we were, we were finishing the film. We'd already actually made a sale on the film. We'd shown it to an American distributor as The Soldier's Wife, and they bought it as The Soldier's Wife. But Neil um, got a phone call from Stanley Kubrick. One of Kubrick's favorite movies was Company of Wolves. In fact, he stole our designer from Company of Wolves for Full Metal Jacket. And he would often ring up Neil and say, what are you doing? What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> and when we made a film called The Miracle, Kubrick had rung and said, what are you doing? And Neil said, oh, I just finished filming this film called The Miracle. And he said, is it a religious film? And Neil said, not really, no. It's about the things The Miracle was about, which weren't really that religious. And he said, well, then call it The Miracle, because nobody will go and see a movie called The Miracle. They'll think it's about religion, and nobody goes to see religious films. We tried to change it, Stardust, which was the song that was in the film. Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely night Dreaming of a song The melody haunts my reverie And I am once again with you When our love was new and each kiss and inspiration 
Oh, but that was long ago. Now my consolation is in the stardust of a song. But there was a film called Stardust when they released in the UK, and there were Stardust Memories in America, the Woody Allen film, and so in the end we just sort of gave up. We just called it The Miracle. And it got great reviews, and no one went to see it in the entire world. It was sad for me because obviously some of the films I've made with Neil, Company of Wars and Mona Lisa in particular, were very commercial films and yeah. got lots of awards and all sorts. This was just zoop. Though I dream in vain in my heart, it will remain my stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. So when we started the crying game, or the soldier's wife, as it was called, didn't make it very easy to finance. But also those words were ringing in our ears when Neil got this call from Stanley again, from Mr. Kubrick, who said, soldier's wife sounds like a war movie. And it's not a war movie, right? He's like, no, it has nothing to do with war. It's like, oh, well, you better be careful. And of course, this time we were like, okay. we better listen. <laughs> so I said, well, the crying game is in a movie. And Neil was like, we, we decided to call it the crying game. And I had done a show with Boy George, and the Pet Shop Boys had done Scandal for us. So I rang up Neil and Chris and said, would you guys be up for doing a version of Dave Barry's The Crying Game? We had three days to do this. And he said, sure. And I rang up George and said, would you be up for it? And he said, yeah, I never worked with Neil and Chris. And Neil and Chris were like, we'd never work with George. That'd be great. Wow. So that was on a Wednesday. On a Thursday, they went in the studio. On Friday, we'd mixed it. On Saturday, it was on the film. Was <laughs> and the film was called The Crying Game. And it was a, such a quick decision and a quick thing. The Soldier's Wife, like what it's called, The Crying Game now. And they were really railing against it. It was a company called Miramax. It was a guy called Harvey Weinstein. I'd done a lot of stuff with Harvey. The first film that they had released successfully was Scandal, in fact. And then we did Rage in Harlem with them and Big Man and all sorts of films. And then The Crying Game, they had passed on, they had passed on, they had passed on as The Soldier's Wife. And so they finally, I showed them a version of it and they really went crazy for it. And then they got really upset that we changed it to The Crying Game. But that was the story of that. That was totally a sort of weird conflux of yeah. like stuff going on. We actually were torn between Boy George or George Michael. It was really weird. But I was so thrilled. It was. I think it was the only number one that Boy George ever had in America. And it was also a huge hit for the Pet Shop Boys. So it kind of worked out really well for everyone. But we had no idea. I thought it would do quite well. Yeah. But to get six Oscar nominations, to win the Oscar for Best Screenplay. You know, I mean, the film did over 80 million in America or something. I mean, it was ridiculous what that film did. And that's how we did Interview of the Vampire, you know, that yeah, was... Yeah, off the back of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
listen, I have kept you for a lot longer than I promised. No, don't apologise. I want. I would keep you here. But this is good because now we can go back at some point and have part two if you're up for it. It's very hard because no, it's wonderful your stories, and we have your the BFI Southbank brochure here as well in terms of the season. I haven't talked about season because we're doing a whole season of films around the finest. finest. Because when we developed this project, I realised that all those films, when I was rushing off to see X-Ray Specs and the Sex Pistols and <laughs> the Ramones in the 70s, everything you do is going to be cutting edge and tough. And those movies that they made in the 40s, that their finest is based on, are somewhat lightweight and don't really have any depth or any meaning. They're this sort of silly, jingoistic, patriotic films. In fact, there were some fantastic movies being made. And the films that we now look back on, Michael Powell, Pressburger films, the David Lean films, the Carol Reed films, like The Third Man and Red Shoes and Brief Encounters, they were born out of this cinema that was a necessity for people in the 40s that had to tell stories about triumph and hope Mm -hmm. and at the same time be real. And there was a kind of new kind of cinema that Ealing was born out of this time. Up until the war, Ealing didn't make films like this, you know. Up until the war, Powell and Pressburger didn't make films like that. David Lean was plucked out of the cutting room to make In Which We Serve with Noel Coward. So these films were a new kind of cinema. But I really discovered this cinema that I thought I had kind of neglected or put in the waste bin, you know, like, oh, well, that was old British stuff that we used to have for John Mills, Sunday Afternoons. That's part of that world of Valare and something to get rid of. But actually, it's something to discover. And I think if you are, if you want to know anything about British cinema or anything about cinema, it's really worth going on to see some of these films because films like Went the Day Well, I mean, women in particular had to take a big role in these films because women were taking a big role in British society. So the films are very, very, very... By, it's called Girls Like Us, the season. And films like Went the Day Well or uh, Millions Like Us uh, or 2,000 Women are predominantly you know, female cast. So there's so much to get out of this, out of the season, and there's so many great films to see. And that is the best plug I can possibly give in <laughs> the short time I have. And I'm so sorry no, that we've kind of wavered all over No, the we show. haven't. It's been the most wonderful conversation and I hope it's the first of a few that we can have as well. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you, Edith. to their finest that's Rachel Portman's end credit music rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with producer Stephen Woolley my huge thanks to Stephen for taking the time to talk to us we reckon it's high time you wrote a book their finest hit screens towards the end of April while the Girls Like Us season at the British Film Institute runs until the end of May details at the BFI website Subscribe to this podcast by heading to edithbowman.com 
where you can also catch up with all of our previous episodes. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do rate us on iTunes if you get the chance. Next up, it's back to where it all began. Our first ever podcast last year was with the wonderful Mr. Ben Wheatley. He's back talking about his new film, Free Far. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.